Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're tuned into Querying the Out on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Iris and I'm joining the studio with Tilda. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Iris. Um, first, I'd just like to start off with an acknowledgement of country. We're broadcasting over the land of the Kulin Nations, um, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples. I'd like to acknowledge that genocide is ongoing and sovereignty was never ceded on these lands. I'd like to pay my respects to Indigenous elders past, present and future and extend those respects to any Indigenous listeners tuning in. Um, so, yeah, I'm joined in the studio with Tilda Joy. Tilda Joy is a transgender unionist living and working in Nam, so-called Melbourne. She is a delegate for the retail and fast food workers union, RAFWU, and is currently leading EBA negotiations with Officeworks, her employer. Um, Tilda is also a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, and active within anti-fascist actions in Nam. She spoke on the intersections of poverty and precarity for femme and queer workers, as well as its relationship to patriarchy and reactionary politics in a bunch of recent speeches that we're going to get into soon. But first, let's start um, with you, you being a member, committee member of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Could you tell listeners about the union and its genesis in opposition to the like the sellout union, the Shop Distributors Alliance, I think it is. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the Shop and Distributed Allies Employee Association, um, or otherwise known as the SDA. Yeah, um, so RAFWU um, started almost two years ago now. It'll be two years next Wednesday, um, the 21st of November. Um, and, yeah, we basically started up in opposition to the SDA, who basically control union membership at supermarkets, um, places like... Kmart, Coal, uh, yeah, Kmart and Coles, Big W, and also the, all the fast food um, chains and that kind of thing by members. They're the largest union in the country, um, and their kind of background comes out of the groupers movement in the 1940s, um, which was a reactionary um, movement to kind of stem the tide of um, communism in union um, leadership, and it was a bunch of kind of Catholic hardliners that infiltrated certain industries and took over um, unions. And um, one of those big ones, obviously, was the retail sector. And, yeah, um, we the SDA is like the direct descendant of that. So they've got really kind of reactionary policies um, in terms of just social policies and spending a lot of their members' dues on things like lobbying the ALP to recriminalise abortion or trying to stop uh, stem cell research or arguing against same-sex marriage and that kind of thing. But also, um, just in terms of being a union, um, they're responsible for um, basically everyone who works in the sector having really dodgy EBAs with no rights to having penalty rates on weeknights and weekends um, and just cutting Sunday penalty rates and that kind of thing. So pretty much every, um, until RAFWA came onto the scene, every um, worker in the industry was basically paying, being paid uh, well below the minimum award wage. So we started up in opposition to that because 
many people have tried to enter the SDA and change it from the inside, mm. but basically that the institution's just too strong and we needed to actually get out there and be vocal and start our own thing. And it's been going fantastically well. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely a really good development in the last few years. When was it founded again? Um, yeah, um, almost two years ago to the day. I think by the time this comes out, it'll be more than two years, but um, 21st of November, 2016. Yeah, could you give some more concrete concrete examples of Rafflu's recent work challenging the SDA in terms of this number of EBAs that Rafflu's been working um, working against the SDA on? Yeah, absolutely. So the first um, EBA that we kind of landed was um, at Coles um, and where we've secured um, the re-establishment of penalty rates. Um, and yeah, uh, they're being called transition payments, but it's basically a partial back pay for the last six years um, since the old agreement was in place of the difference between the minimum wage and um, what they're actually being paid. So for most workers, that's that's thousands of dollars. They're not paying it out in full, um, and that's due to the fact that the SDA is still involved in the same agreements. Um, so that that would be one EBA. Um, and one thing we saw coming out of that is a new practice from the the SDA, which is um, two-tier um, employment agreements where new workers get brought in on a lower wage than existing workers kind of thing. So that's how they're trying to um, save costs for the companies now. Um, but broadly, that's that's been a massive win. Um, and what we got out of that was basically some admissions from the Fair Work Commission um, saying that uh, basically the old agreement didn't meet what's called the better off overall test, where every worker had to be better off under the agreement than the award. Mm. Um, so that, that's been really great. Um, there's been another agreement at Woolworths recently um, where that Woolworths took a lot, a lot harder line against us than um, Coles did, probably because they saw what happened at Coles. Um, and yeah, that's um, what we've seen there um, is the return of um, penalty rates, but they kind of stemmed that a little bit by... Um, if you work on a Saturday at the moment, um, you actually earn a lower base rate than you'd work earn during the week, but you get the penalty mm. rates on top of that. So your wage is still better than the minimum wage, but it's not actually a 25% increase yeah. kind of thing. So we've been able to push the employer to the point where they're saying, yes, we need to pay at least the minimum wage yet, but we've still got another union kind of fighting against us and trying to push wages down, which is very difficult. So that one's been less successful at the moment. I'm, um bargaining with Office of Works, as you mentioned. Um, and yeah, that's that's in its early stages at the moment. Um, we're also out at BWS. Um, McDonald's has just kicked off. Our members have just um, uh, endorsed their log of claims there. And yeah, um, there's lots of action at the moment. Yeah. Um, I noticed the SGA were in attendance at the Change the Rules rally um, the other weekends. Um, from your perspective as unionists and a member of a, like a revolutionary union, what are your thoughts on the limitations of change the rules? Oh yeah, yeah, that was quite funny. Um, at the change the rules rally, we had almost as many um, people marching <laughs> as the SDA, which is incredible because for what they're the most numerous union in the country. But you can almost, you know, bet your life on the fact that. 90% of those people marching with the SDA are paid mm, organisers as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, the Change the Rules rally, for retail and fast food workers, we haven't 
to deliver the increases um, in our wages, we don't need a single law changed. Mm. We just actually need effective union representation to enforce the minimum wage. Yeah. And that, that's So it's a little bit empty, um, especially when you see Sally McManus and people mm. standing up there and, um, you know, oh, you know, the SDA is working to get your penalty rates back. Like, they're the people who took them away <laughs> in the first place. So it's, um, yeah, that's a bit of a joke. Um, just personally, I don't think this is the union's official position, but um, yeah. I kind of find it a bit distasteful that the union movement is basically begging our government to give us better laws kind of thing when our tool is um, actually being able to enforce our own conditions through, you know, controlling labour practices. I understand that the laws make that difficult, yeah. but um, basically it's another sign of like the professionalisation of um, the union movement mm. and the fact that, um, yeah, a lot of this is about you know, union bu- bureaucrats being able to mobilise politicians instead of rank-and-file workers organising their workplace to make life hard for the bosses. Yeah, exactly. And we saw Daniel Andrews lead the march um, despite his record of spending record numbers on new police and prisons and having plans to privatise public housing land. Um, and he also privatised the ports and that was sold out and the kind of unions kind of... Yeah, that sort of dissent was kind of muffled. So it's kind of disturbing how this is happening. Absolutely. Like, if you want to be quite cynical about the Change the Rules campaign, it's basically just a, a Labor re-election campaign for the Andrews government, but also for, for Bill Shorten. Um, yeah, and it's just another exemplary thing, like we talked about, the professionalisation of um, unionism, but it's also the way of integrating the um, the Labor movement as just a another arm of capital kind of thing, you know, like it, mm. it's, it's not in opposition at all. It's just a part and parcel of maintaining capitalism. Yeah. And I suppose like the Labor Party has like, that's its history as the, as that sort of managing the labor relationship with capital and sort of quelling, um, quelling dissent. And I think there's a book coming out by, I think Elizabeth Humphreys and something else that has a picture of Bob Hawke, and Margaret Thatcher together, and it talks about how the Labour Party orchestrated neoliberalisms, and now we're seeing, like, talking points about, like, from Labour um, members who are union officials and Labour politicians being, like, neoliberalism and inequality is at a record level high, but there's this historical... Um, this is absence of a historical understanding that the Labour Party introduced a lot of this. Yeah, and again, it goes way back as well to, um, like, that reactionary groupers movement and the National Civic Council coming in and um, trying to stem anti-capitalist voices in um, in the labour movement, you know. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. The Accord and all of that all happened under neoliberal labour leaders. It's been a long time since we've had actual workers' party anywhere near power. Yeah. Um, so moving on to a speech you did last month at the We Deserve a Living Anti-Poverty Week Conference 2018 in Mianjin, Brisbane. Um, and in it, you talked about your experiences of precarity, unemployment, including transphobia from job job providers. Could you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, that was a really fantastic conference. Um, and, yeah, I was up there to share my experience of poverty, but also um, the institutional parts of, um, you know, the institution of work, um, and how that, 
is basically structured to keep certain people in precarity and in poverty and to uh, prop up other other parts um, like patriarchy and stuff that are integral to capitalism. But one of the main stories I, I shared there was um, my experience of finishing uni, um, figuring out that I was trans um, mm. and, uh, you know, going to look for work. Basically, I've got my qualifications now. I'm going to go and find a, a nice professional job and really struggling to find a job because, you know, uni's a scam and you know, there's no yeah. jobs out there. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, turning to, uh, yeah, back to the industries I worked in in high school and retail and fast food and that kind of thing and just applying for the same old jobs. And on the one hand, not being able to find work because um, just purely of my age, being I was 26 at the time, um, and, you know, it's a lot cheaper to hire a 15-year-old. Mm which is, you know, just to plug the union for a second, that's one of the big things that um, we're fighting for is the abolition of junior wages because mm. not only does it devalue the labour of children's work and allow a, an underclass of child labour in our country, um, but also um, it keeps people, you know, who need to pay rent and have extra responsibilities um, out of work, basically. Um, so there was that, um, but there was also the fact that I was, you know, early transition... Um, trans person, you know, who's obviously clocked as male at that point, um, coming in to um, interviews. And, you know, if you've got 10 candidates and, you know, you're whittling them down, you know, like, you're probably not going to pick the one who rocks up in a skirt kind of thing. Um, but that was kind of my strategy in finding work was like, if you're not down with me as I am, then I don't really want the job then because I'm going to have troubles with transphobia. So that was my strategy, but I found, um, I eventually I was placed in, um, into a program that was like an LGBTI QA plus, such a, <laughs> a queer job agency. Yeah. Um, and, uh, basically, um, they, you know, I finally got this interview at Officeworks, um, you know, and I've been doing lots of interviews and going quite well, you know, I've reasonably confident person, can um, carry myself well, um, and did a practice phone interview with my, um, what are they called, employment agent, and um, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, you went really great, you know, but um, yeah, I reckon you'll definitely get the job, but like, what are you going to wear, you know, and I was just described, you know, black blouse, you know, business skirt, little black shoes, and you know, get some new stockings with no holes in them, that kind of thing, and I'm just like, oh, have you, have you thought of wearing something more conservative than that, you know? Um, which is just like, that's pretty darn conservative. <laughs> um, but, you know, what she meant was, like, get back in the closet because they're never going to hire um, a trans person who doesn't pass well or just never going to hire a trans person. Mm -hmm. um, so one of those two things is what basically she meant or that she just found trans people existing in the world to be a radical political statement or something, which I'm happy with. <laughs> That's cool. <Yeah. laughs> but it's also, yeah, incredibly messed up to deal with. So she hooked me up with a hundred bucks um, somehow and went down to Cotton On and bought some chinos and showed up to the job interview dressed as a boy and got the job, which, you know, I guess she's right. Like patriarchy is real and you've got to appease it if you want to succeed under capitalism. Um, but it's also something incredibly messed up that we've got to change. Like, um, yeah. Mm, yes, definitely. Um, 
And if you just tuned in now, I'm Iris and I'm here with Tilda and you're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au slash streaming and also later on demand on that website as well as on digital radio. Um, yeah, touching on, yeah, I think that's such a familiar experience that I kind of relate to this, like, yeah, the struggles of employment in terms of navigating coming out and yeah so many people in my circle struggle with in my trans circle struggle with this um and it's such a big issue and and it, I was actually just thinking about this earlier and there was an article I'm going to read a quote from by Amber Holobu and Margaret Weiss who write about the myth of gay affluence and the rising queer precarity and and a quote from that article that I was reminded of um, is, as long as the LGBT movement responds primarily to the needs of desires of wealthy, traditionally gendered white gay men and lesbians, it cannot serve as a social movement for broad-based social or economic change. If class, race and poverty are not part of the political work around queerness, the movement cannot contest the crisis facing queer and trans people today. I cannot even name or see it, referring instead referring instead um, to the myth of gay affluence. And indeed, it appears as Alan Barub writes that queer studies has mostly ignored the economy and queer activists promote our community, in inverted commas, as the hottest marketing niche around. But this state of has inadvertently reinforces the precarious economic situation most queer and trans people face. Do you have any thoughts on that area? Absolutely. Like, um, for starters, like every single trans girl I know is completely broke. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's bullshit. Oh, am I allowed to swear? I just did. That's Sorry. okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but as well, yeah, um, our analysis of, um, uh, queerness and transness needs to obviously include like, the intersections of class and um, and race and stuff like that. That was a, a point I was trying to make up in um, in Mianjin as well. Was yeah. like uh, we th- this is my experience of systematic poverty because you know like queer bodies are repressed in our society, but you know these low paid industries like retail and fast food are full of migrants as well highly feminized mm. in terms of, you know, just cis women and mothers and stuff having to yep. um, struggle along in these really unsociable hours and that kind of thing. There's lots of disabled people. There's like lots of children, lots of older workers as well. Um, and these intersections of disadvantage, if we're not, um, you know, banding together and we're busy fighting these culture wars and that kind of thing, like reactionally people would have us do, um, then we're actually never going to get to the, the root cause of this stuff, you know. Yeah, and at the time of this recording, it is the anniversary of the postal survey results. Mm. Um, do you have any thoughts and limits of the postal survey? And mm. like that's celebrated as like a massive progress, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a few thoughts about that. Um, when the survey was happening, um, I this is actually before I was a member of Rafwu. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I knew about the SDA and knew I didn't want to join them. Um, and I heard that um, NUW um, could uh, represent me at work, you know, if shit went down or whatever. So there I go again. 
potty mouth. Um, and so I went along to their annual picnic day, you know, and they had like the queer table there and they're handing out the yes shirts and all that kind of thing. And it was kind of like, it was really good to see the union movement actually standing up and making um, queer rights like an issue. Um, but, you know, obviously um, the entire existence of putting our rights to a vote like that, to a non-binding vote that was completely unnecessary, that was just demanded by the far right wing of our government, um, was obviously just so, so harmful. And to see people celebrating the fact that, oh, yay, we did it, when almost unanimously, like, people who the vote actually affected um, would say we would have rather to put it off and actually have it done another way than have this long campaign with literal homophobic abuse raining from the sky. Um, yeah, it's just so, so distressing. So to look back and kind of have this liberal, you know, communal back padding is just sickening. Um, but as well, it just hasn't solved a lot of the issues. And the in the opening of the debate, I think people like the Australian Christian Lobby and stuff like that knew that it was a losing battle, like, mm. you know, marriage equality was coming. So what's the first thing they do is they turn to trans kids, you know, and it yeah. kind of opened the door up to have a big conversation about queerness in general. And yeah, we're just seeing that play out now, you know? And so we've got, we've got same sex marriage, but we haven't really ended the trans divorce laws still. So like that didn't fix that. And, you know, we see with the um, religious freedom review, the, the Ruddock review, um, basically, that was widely rejected because, you know, we're not going to kick um, gay kids out of school. But the legislation for that as well only covers cis gay kids. Like, there's nothing in it that would stop anyone from expelling a trans kid. So, overall, it's kind of, mm. yeah, um, a lot of, uh, we'll make a bit of progress, but not too much. <laughs> and, yeah, we're going to just basically, people still find transness icky. And they don't want to, don't want to support us publicly. Yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. It was seen in in the US, um, which marriage is more high stakes in terms of it is an unequal institution, and people's marriage status can determine if they have access to healthcare in the US, which it isn't as high stakes in Australia, but there is like inequality tied to marriage and if you're married on marriage stuff that's stuff related to that there was seen posts that was seen um recently trump's anti-trans and anti-intersex memo we've seen all this like stuff all this panic around bathroom bills and some queer activists have, arg have argued that um the lack of response from the mainstream lgb lg really it's l these dominant wh white gay and lesbians really m maybe some bi people probably not um that sort of focus has sort of built this like um, that hasn't been hasn't been challenged. Have, they haven't challenged transphobia. Sort of meant it's paved the way for. I think yeah, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore sort of wrote that it's paved the way for a lot of legislative transphobia. And yeah, I worry the same thing is happening here. And we saw in the postal survey, um, trans women, people, people of color, indigenous people, many communities sort of thrown on the bus and ignored in it um, for the, in the name of respectability, I guess, and single-issue homonormativity. 
Um, so that's concerning. Do you see concerning developments? I suppose the thing you've been most active in is anti-fascism. Yeah, yeah. Um, totally. Uh, and, yeah, you can even see within movements like that, um, you know, people like, you know, Milo's kind of fallen out of favour now, but, you know, like, um, in, within the Proud Boys as well, they're willing to, um, you know, assimilate people from groups, uh, you know, like a, a cis gay dude or, you know, some um, Hispanic and, and black people over in the States into the Proud Boys, so long as they uphold patriarchy and um, white supremacy, you know, like that's that's happening. And they're specifically talking about coming after trans people and coming to, coming to mess us up. So like, that's obviously super duper scary. Um, and yeah, I really wish that here in Nam we had like a more effective anti-fascist response to when this stuff kind of goes down. It's a bit fragmented at the moment. Um, I won't go into the details of it, but there's, you know, some, some dominant groups who kind of do a lot of rallying, but it yeah. doesn't feel like there's like the concerted anti-fascist organizing that we need to actually stem this. I was actually quite buoyed yeah. um, last week. We had the um, uh, the March Against Racism rally kind of thing. Yeah. But it came um, just days after the explosion in Burke Street. Yeah. And there were like uh, Avi Yemeni and um, all them kind of organised a bit of a, yeah. a Nazi rally um, just a block away from the yeah. site of the explosion. And we tried, like the, the discouraging thing is that we tried to get a crew from mm. the anti-racism rally to head down there and... There were only like, no one we approached actually wanted to come down. There were some people from another crew who were at the rally who showed up autonomously and we showed up. Um, and so that was disappointing that like more broadly, there wasn't just anti-fascist support within the anti-racist movement um, to kind of confront this Nazi rally. But then on the streets, we were just kind of talking to people and letting people know um, about the this white pride rally happening across the street. Um, and at first when we got started chanting, like the cops threatened us with, you know, jangling handcuffs and saying like, we're going to arrest you if you keep going. Um, but then once people figured out what was going on and like normal people who weren't suspected of being anarchists or communists and started leading us, um, mm. the cops backed right off, which is just incredible because, mm. you know, they can't be seen to be arresting normal people. Um, <laughs> But as well, like, there is community support. People abhor this kind of stuff and it, we need to take it seriously and we need to kind of um, actually look at broadening the movement out because there is immense support for not having Nazi rallies. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's getting people to take the action. And it's incredibly disappointing that the activist base in Melbourne um, is ready to take symbolic action but not the action in terms of community self-defense, you know, um, which is not necessarily fighting. It's just being there and being active and letting people know what's going on. You know, it's a small rump of people who are actually, um, ready, ready to take that action. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So with those people, um, what happened, what happened with the people that joined you? Oh, um, they were just people from the yeah. street. There was people in the apartments actually above who lived there who, um, Basically, the cops needed a warrant to 
enter the, oh, okay. the house. So they, they yeah. were, were pivotal. Um, we had no idea who they were, but they were shouting out anti-fascist stuff. And nice. Yeah, it was great because we couldn't join him because we were being told we'd be arrested. But then, yeah, just people from the street who were just informing, like, do you know what's going on across the yeah. road? A lot of them guessed, like, yeah, it looks like a white pride rally. <laughs> I was like, that's exactly what it is. Um, and they were disgusted. And, like, the first time they played the national anthem, because <laughs> they played it several times, um, people were kind of a bit like, oh, you know, it's like a, a somber kind of thing. But, like, mm-hmm. by the time... <laughs> It kind of people figured out what's going on. Like there was visible disgust on people's faces that you know the flag and the anthem, which you know, let's burn both of those things. Yeah. But <laughs> um, uh, visible disgust on the um, you know just passers-by faces that you know this horrible nationalism was just being used in the most tasteless way, and um, you know well, taste shouldn't really matter, but it was just just beyond the pale, and. Um, yeah, they, they kind of got involved and started leading the chants as well, which was great because, you know, instead of the cops just pinning someone dressed in black, <laughs> um, there was there was too, too many, but too many normal people with, like, shopping bags and stuff who were, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously, you know, because I think, I think the police are genuinely worried about anti, anti-cop sentiment and, you know, um, they freak out when we don't want to talk to them. Yeah, um, and they crack down do. really hard when we don't want, when activists don't want to talk to them. Yeah, but um, they also, you know, they want to keep normal people on side, you know. And you know, there's all this talk about free speech and stuff. If they were seen to be arresting normal people, I keep using that kind of phrase, but that's what I mean. It's like just non-activist liberals. Um, then yeah, that would foster greater um, anti-cop sentiment, which. They're, they're really afraid of, and I think that's kind of an opportunity for us to kind of capitalize on. Mm, yeah, potentially. Um, and we notice like a lot of organizing in different um, communities, particularly communities of color, against a lot of the police violence that's ongoing at the moment. Um, and some people are like highlighting that against this kind of racist election campaign of the party's law and order sort of campaign. Um, and for those tuning in right now, you're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au slash streaming on digital radio as well. I'm Iris and I'm joined in the studio here with Tilda. Um, so moving on, moving back to sort of some stuff around, um, you leading negotiations with office works management. Um, I heard you spoke about gender silos that the working women get mm. organized, the fight for equal pay conference run by the women unionist network held at Geelong trades hall on the stick together show, um, which is a three CR show. Um, could you I was talk so stoked to, to that? I had no idea. I was, cause I thought that was going to go on solidarity breakfast or something. And I was so stoked to be on stick together anyway. Um, yeah. So one of the things we're noticing at office works is that um, certain certain roles, like paper griddle roles or working on front of house um, and working in the print and copy department are heavily skewed female. And um, it's, like, symbolic but also real, the fact that they have no mobility in the organisation. They have to stay behind the counter or at the front door mm. saying hello to people. Um, and the customer service roles um, are especially tech and that kind of thing, um, but also the kind of the more logistical um, replenishment, that kind of side, 
at least in my store, um, are really heavily um, male-dominated and management's heavily male-dominated. Um, so what we want to kind of achieve um, through our negotiations is one of our clauses is um, mandatory um, gender targets for new hires. So it's not, not a radical claim at all. It's kind of like a incremental change um, to have, yeah, um, gender equality um, in each department. So we don't have a boys group over here and a girls group over here and we don't have this feminised kind of labour um, which, you know, the way um, it's usually spoken about is um, uh, in terms of having opportunities to move up the, the rank and kind of have boss feminism and more, more female bosses with better, better wages, um, which, you know, is kind of the liberal language you have to use to kind of make sense to corporate people. But it's also um, just about not having um, little clicks of patriarchy just running certain things, you know, because you can see it in the boys' departments where they get to take their breaks in pairs and have pizza parties and just not be available. Um, and the women get the hardest jobs in the store with the least support. Um, and so that's something we kind of want to enforce um, at the level of an agreement at this stage, because that's kind of the tool we've got. Um, and yeah, but just more generally as a union, we're kind of committed to um, organising in that sense to kind of break up the gender segregation in the workplace. Yeah, that's so important. And combining that sort of structural, um, that they are the split in terms of how labor is gendered and, and racialized and who does what sort of work and who gets paid the most of sort of big issues. Um, I've also at, at, the t at the time of this recording, I've noticed um, you're going to be speaking on the relationship between wage theft and poverty tonight. tonight? Could you explain that <laughs> Where for... Where's that? Listeners? <laughs> <laughs> um, at a library. Oh, no, that was last month. I mean, last month. Last month. Oh, I got tonight. that confused. Okay. <laughs> I was starting to sweat. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was really great. Um, that was at the city of Yarra. That was an anti-poverty week um, uh, little thing they had there. Um, yeah, and we're just talking um, kind of generally about stuff we touched on before with, um, you know, uh, retail being just chronically underpaid and not getting their, you know, the minimum wage and penalty rates and that kind of thing. Um, but also just within, um, within retail, you know, and this is something that's kind of another side effect of having these, uh, boys clubs mm. is, you know, like management, especially like junior management will be on good terms with the young, young fellas. And then they'll be willing to work extra hours for nothing because they're all mates or, um, you know, work for pizza or, um, gift vouchers sometimes to avoid having to pay overtime and things like that, like wage theft happens in those areas, but it also happens, um, in like the feminized roles as well, where, um, at the closing of shifts or at the changeover, um, especially in like the more technical roles, like, um, print and copy, you can get held up for 20 minutes with one customer kind of thing. And there'll be periods of time where you're just unpaid for work that you have performed, you know, and that's something we're trying to fight in the EBA at the moment and getting, you know, like something in the agreement that says you'll be paid for all time worked. But, um, you know, the company's response is that's uh, um, a 
operational matter, you know, like it, we already have that, you know, if you clocked on, you get paid and it's like, okay, but we're having our wages adjusted because they don't reflect our rosters, even though we've done the extra work. Um, so that's, yeah, just another way that wage theft kind of occurs. Um, and also just trying to frame, um, how many 15 year olds work in the industry as an issue of wage theft. Not only are you touched on that before, but you're stealing their wages mm. by giving them, you know, 65% pay <laughs> um but it's also just sapping money out of the community from people who um you know not to say that children don't need jobs there's some people who you know especially trans and queer people who can't live at home and need to need to get rent covered and that kind of thing and they especially need a full wage um but yeah then people who you know have families or have um, rent to pay and that kind of thing like that's that's another kind of form of wage theft so we're talking about that and then I was also ranting a little bit about my background in fast food when I was a kid and just <laughs> getting paid mm. $6.15 an hour under a dodgy SDA agreement. Like, <laughs> yeah, so that kind of thing. But it was a really, really nice night. And um, yeah, small, small crowd. It was very conversational. That's nice. Yeah, I thought we'd end on talking about an organisation you're a member of, the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, and yeah, for listeners that might know much about the IWW, it was an instrumental radical organisation that led like anti-conscription labour organising in World War One in Melbourne and Sydney and other cities as well and other places around the world before it was sort of smashed by the state in terms of it was really heavily targeted. Um, could you talk about the politics of the IWW and what appealed to you about the Wobblies? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so... One, they're an international union, like they came out of Chicago in 1904, um, and just learning about like the history of them um, and how uh, one of the areas I used to organise along was maritime labour and uh, controlling ports and stuff across state borders. Um, and the way they're able to do that is by having wobbly shops all along the coast, you know, so if someone needed to strike, they all needed to strike, and that's kind of you know, they're famous saying an injury to one is an injury to all. That's kind of um, come out of that. But it was also the labour conditions back then are remarkably similar to this gig economy kind of thing we've got mm. happening now, you know, where you show up one day and there might be work, you show up the next day, they might not, you know, like you're not really employed on a full-time basis. You're kind of just contracting yourself out as like a unit of labour, you know, housed in a bag of flesh. And so it seemed very relevant at the time. Um, and the approach of being um, a general union, so not attached to any specific industry, like all workers can join it. It's all, the one big union of all the workers um, is obviously very appealing because I think that's something that um, is a major downfall of the, the modern trade, trade union movement is the way that we um, don't really have that solidarity between between shops, you know, and that's enforced legally. Um, the organising IWW does, we can never become a registered organisation because you're just flat out not allowed to be across too many industries in this country, um, which is good as well because we don't have to um, toe the party line in, in that sense. The other big thing um, is that um, they explicitly call for the abolition of the wage system, um, which I think is just, you know, it's one of these just fundamental demands, which I think unionism just needs to point to. It's like, um, destruction of capital and, you know, um, making the good things in life available to everyone. And that's, yeah, just fundamental to it. Um, and I think that's, 
you know, if you're not heading towards these bigger things in everything you do, um, then I don't know what you're doing, you know? So that, that's, that's really why I like to get involved. And if there's things that your trade union's not doing for you, like find someone who will do, do them. And that, for me, that's the IWW, you know, they're down with the anti-fascist movement. They're down with um, prison abolition. Like, um, I don't know if listeners are aware of the prison strike that's been happening um, mm. throughout the year yeah. in the States, but the Incarcerated Workers Organising Committee over there is part of the IWW and has organised amazing work over there and kind of um, really bringing, you know, abolition and um, prison labour right to the forefront. So, yeah, it's just a fantastic thing to be part of. Yeah. Um Thanks for that, and thanks for being on Queering the Air. Um, it's been really good to speak to you. It's been such a pleasure, Iris. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.